Welcome to Temporary Experts, the show where two professional science communicators investigate relevant science stories from the everyday, research the heck out of it, and discuss their findings with you. Howdy there, folks. She's Sarah Bannister. And he's Davis Leong, and together we're your Temporary, temporary Experts. experts. This week's topic is love. love. Because it's Valentine's times. That's right. It is February. <laughs> it is the month of love. Yay. It is Hallmark holiday massacre come to life. It is. It you is have to buy Valentine's. flowers and candies for people to prove that you love them. Yeah. Chocolates and those little chalky hearts with the letters written on them. I actually made... All the rage. <laughs> I, uh, you will find out during this uh, podcast my feelings on romance as a whole and, the, what, and what our society has done to it. But I do absolutely love hearts as a design feature. Like, mm. I just love the look of, like, little hearts. And uh, so I actually made some origami paper hearts and then I wrote on them like those paper... Or like those candy hearts, mm -hmm. you know? And they're, like, they're kind of inflatable, so they, like, pop up. And uh, I looked for, like, the old school ones... Of like what they used to actually say, and I came uh, across one. You are cute. Yeah, but I came across <laughs> I came across one, and it, it's my favorite one. It said "Page me." Oh, nice. So I wrote "Page me" on one of them. Yeah. <laughs> For those of you that don't know, before the cell phone, before the the Palm Pilot was the pager. Yeah. And it was a little LCD screen, and it would go on your hip. Doctors still use them because because uh, they're on a different frequency. They're on radio frequency rather oh. than. Uh, like some of the higher frequencies that cell phones are on now. So they're better for like hospitals and stuff like that. Um, anyway, we were getting way off topic already. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> before we before we go too deep into the, uh, the science of love and attraction and Valentine's Day and our various... Uh, our various um, feelings on the matter. Feelings on the matter, <laughs> yeah. We have some updates, don't we, Sarah? We do have some updates. So first, the process of optogenetics. Mm -hmm. We weren't sure. Davis thought it might be... It has something to do with genetics and gene therapy, and I thought it had to do with, like, you have to, like, actually get into the brain and access these parts. Well, I thought it was, yeah, that it's, like, you have to genetically modify the organism yeah. in order to do this test. Yes. Yeah. So it turns out it's kind of both. Uh, it's using microbial opsin that you have to, uh, which is, like, a protein... It's a protein complex. Yeah, it's a protein yeah. complex. Uh, and that's what you put, like, your genes in, but then you have to get it into the desired region of your specimen organism. Yeah. organism so it's kind of both so there you go optogenetics and then i also didn't know where the infralimbic cortex is which uh played an important role as we talked about last time and the infralimbic cortex is in the cortical region of the ventromedial prefrontal cortex so why of course of how course. could you forget something so simple oh i know right <laughs> so so few syllables uh so like prefrontal cortex like we said the front of your head behind your forehead it's in there Somewhere. Yes. In the cortical region, to be specific. <laughs> yes, the cortical yeah. region. <laughs> but the really the really important stuff, the hard-hitting stuff, what sock do you put on first? Okay. And is it different from which shoe you put on first? <laughs> I, I haven't been leaving my house very much, mm. so I don't... The, the shoe thing, I can't answer. Uh, <laughs> but socks, I am pretty sure it's the left one. But I thought about this just before I put my socks on every single day since we did the last yeah. podcast recording. So I'm not sure because I thought it was the left one first. Mm. So it could just be confirmation bias because I thought about it as I was choosing my socks for the day. But 
I am pretty sure it's left. How about you? Oh, it's left. Oh, I, I, I know this oh. already. Yeah. He I knows. Know. I know. I, I, I always put my left sock on first. I generally put my left shoe on first. Nice. This is something that I have observed for a long time because I've kind of known this whole uh, like the cross your arms, the sock sort of thing. So I've taken note of it in the past. So I don't need to reevaluate my sock choice every day. <laughs> you uh, also wear a lot of the same types of socks. Yes. yes Where's mine have cool of... patterns? What's my pattern today, Davis? Uh, you have cats with hearts. I do have cats pink, with hearts. Pink cats, pink cats with red hearts for love. Yep. Yeah, that's right. I uh, incidentally dressed for today's show. I was wearing, wearing my big love sweater. It's got love written in big white letters on it. Yeah, I when I saw him, I was like, hey, oh, you dressed, dressed for today. <laughs> yes. And he was like, what? And I was like, your shirt. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> yeah, right. it, took me, it took me a solid minute. Um, but yes. how about the most important question that everyone wants to know? How are our resolutions going? Yeah. Uh, so I have not been working on the volcano song yet. <gasps> I have a whole year. <laughs> whole year to achieve this well, i should break your goal uh, into smaller pieces but okay you do you no no no. well i just i haven't <laughs> been able to set out on this goal yet so i haven't been able to roadmap it it's it's on my mind but it's just it's not the resolution i took care of in the two weeks since we last recorded the i uh i got a gym membership so that was one ah, of my resolutions okay. and uh there was another thing that i did Oh, I made an Instagram for the Yay! show, so uh, we'll we'll talk about that at the end. But it exists, <laughs> so check resolution complete. Bring yeah. on twenty twenty three. Nailed it. Yeah. Um, one for one, baby. <laughs> two for two. Got the gym membership too. Two two for three. I don't want to take anything away from you, but <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I said I haven't started the other one yet, so it doesn't count. It's not in the denominator just yet. Hmm. What about you? How 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 are you doing? They are going. They Your, are... Yours are a little bit more, like, less checkmarky than mine. One what? and dones. Yeah, mine are not one and dones, but I do get a checkmark <laughs> for each of them every day. Yeah. So they're more checkmarky. Yeah. If we're talking literal checkmarks. Well, quantity my... over quality of checkmark, really, is what we're discussing here. Harsh, <laughs> you've but cut, yes. You cut some quantity. <laughs> I have some quality checkmarks. I'm trying to establish new habits. Yeah. And as we talked about last time... That's difficult to do, so I'm going to use the baby steps. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah. Excellent. Here we go. So there you go. Hopefully you're all keeping up with your resolutions at home. We'll be checking in <laughs> every week for the rest of the year. Probably not. Um, cool. All right. So uh, so love. That uh, that principle of all human emotions. I don't know. I just... <laughs> Davis, what is love? What is love? Oh, I mean, yeah, you're setting that up the whole time. Um, Baby, don't Yeah, if only we me. could harmonize better than that. Yeah. Um, Sorry, listeners. Yeah. Um, yeah, despite a... Um, who sings that song? I should know this. It's in Night at the Roxbury, right? It is. Because the... it doesn't really matter who the singer is. I can remember now where, I, where it's from, so... The 80s pop lover inside of me is very mad at me that I can't remember the name of this yeah. artist. But anyway. We'll answer it next time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, love. You know, love, it's that warm, fuzzy feeling you get. Um, it's the love between parent and child. It's the love between two lovers. Um, it's the <laughs> love it. between a man and his dog. I don't know. A man and his boat. Yeah. People love, love stuff. <laughs> people love stuff period yeah exactly and the podcast yeah uh friendship love 
you know. Yeah, that's true. Do you tell your friends you love them? You should. You should. Give them you hugs. Should. Tell them you love them. Yeah. Well, only hug them if they want to be hugged. Some people Give love. consensual hugs. Yeah, exactly. But you can tell <laughs> them you love them. You you can love and be unrequited. Yeah. You can love your friends and not have them love you back. <laughs> but there is a, and we'll get into this, I feel, as we go, but there's such a, a focus on romantic love in our society. And mm -hmm. there are so many other types of love that people don't talk about as much. So then there's this whole thing of like, if people don't have romantic love, they feel that they are unloved or they feel that they... Or they're they, unfulfilled in their lives. Exactly. Or they're mm -hmm. like, I have all this love to give and I don't know who to give yeah. it to. And it's like, one, give it to yourself. Like, be nice to yourself. Go, like, work on your issues and, and figure out how to create a person that you really like within yourself. Uh, and then look around to friends and family and, like, you could always get a pet or, like... There's lots of ways to get love that are not just romantic love. And I will say that a lot through this, mm -hmm. probably. It's fair that, like, romantic love um, is so difficult to kind of escape in the conversation of love or, like, why that's where our minds jump to to start. I mean, like, one, obviously, like, we grow up we grew up in a particular society where, like, that's the paradigm, right? And the um, nuclear family. The nuclear family, all that stuff. But even, like, you think back to, like, antiquity, right? Like, there's obviously the classic, like, Greek myth that human beings had, you know, four legs, four arms, and two faces, and Zeus feared their power, so he split them all in half, and that's why that we one. wander the earth looking for our match. I our, did know that one because yeah. I, I heard of our soulmates. people relating it to humans used to be octopuses. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> and there's actually a few of them. There's a few <clears throat> myths from different cultures that kind of are all centered around that same idea where it's like your soul is split in two and you're always looking for your other half kind of. And right. that's like the soulmate thing. Um, I can't mean? remember the other one I'm thinking of, but the Greek one is the really common one that comes up. Hmm. Mm -hmm. As you try to think of that other one, I'm just going to say right now because... I know I used to be very uh, particular about this, that the plural of octopus is octopi. It, it is, is not. not. It is not. octopuses. Because of which, the etymology. Yes. Now, it's horrible to say, and I hate it, and octopi is a, a beautiful word, but it's wrong. So it's octopuses. I'm sorry. Yeah, it's octopuses. Now, the other one that I was, <laughs> I was always told that genius, the plural of genius is not geniuses, but geni oh. or, or genui or something. That one I'll have to check because I wonder if it's in the same, because I, I think that's the one that comes up sometimes in the conversation of like octopi versus octopuses. There's mm -hmm. another one too, but it I basically, the, yeah. Uh, the uh, goose, geese, moose, meese. But moose, because it's not meese. No, it's not, because moose is an indigenous word exactly. that is already plural. So. It's because English just stole a bunch of words from other languages, so everything has different origins and you pluralize it differently. Yeah, yeah. And that's where like octop the octopus thing comes from, is because octopus is uh, Greek, right? Greek I, root? I don't know. Yeah. So anyway, anyway. it has to do with the etymology. <laughs> not important. But anyway. Love. So love. Uh, love. Soulmates, it, your missing piece, your other half. Yeah. The it's person in, that completes you. Yeah. We often associate, obviously, um, imagery-wise, we associate love with, with the heart. I also think that, like, that, um, the, the like, graphic heart that, you know, is probably popping up in your brain. The right one now, you can you do listening. with your hands. Yeah, exactly. Or the one that you, like, draw on your notebook and stuff like that. The that, one that's on my socks. Exactly. I think that one has, like, that shape has a particular name. I mean, it's colloquially known as a heart, but it also has, like, another name because it's not, obviously, it's not, like, an anatomical heart. Yeah. Um, and, but, yeah, like, that's, like, the iconography comes up a lot. Uh, I can't remember. I was going somewhere with this, and now I've forgotten where I was going well, with this. The, the heart is also a symmetrical shape. 
in the way that we draw it, right? Oh. So it's these two halves, and you can put it together yeah. easily. I, I remember You can now. make it with your friend. I'm trying to get Davis <laughs> to do it with me now. Oh, <laughs> You can't see this. <laughs> do, do I, it with your I do remember now. I remember what I was trying to say. Was that, like, we typically associate love with the heart because of the iconography of the heart and its sort of association with love and stuff like that. Bleeding hearts, all that stuff. And when um, you... When a you, broken heart. Yeah, blah, blah, when blah. you are, like broken up with and stuff you can feel it in your chest well and there's even there has been science that shows like people can die of a broken heart <clears throat> so it does happen um but even not though to we... freak you out around <laughs> valentine's day <laughs> and like when you when you feel attraction to someone your pace might quicken you might feel that you feel the butterflies in your stomach those sorts Ooh. of things but love as a like chemical physiological reaction is like most things centered in the brain Isn't oh. that right? Mm -hmm. is in the brain yes indeed so uh this is where the concept that you might have heard of you might not have that love is an addiction mm -hmm. uh because it operates in the same way that addictions like drug addictions operate in your brain because they're all messing with the same sorts of chemicals and hormones and your neurotransmitters and all of that mm -hmm. uh came across a fun quote about this yeah like know that your your brain on drugs yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. So this yeah. is, this article was talking about this, and it's a, a Psychology Today article. It was talking about the your brain on drugs and all of that, and then said, "Love has probably started more schoolyard fights, adult feuds, and outright wars than every other catalyst combined: money, alcohol, drugs, politics, sports, etc. And thanks to some recent brain imaging research, we now know why. Put simply, the effects of love on the brain are strikingly similar to the effects of drugs on it. So yeah, whether it's love or drugs, we've got the cracked egg, the hot frying pan, the sizzle, and the stupidity." Mm -hmm. And and as we'll talk about too, right, it's, you know, some of the physiological responses to the emotion of love and the neurotransmitters and the hormones that are released will cause different parts of the brain activity to like be suppressed and things like that. Um, and it is like, you know, so some of the colloquial stuff that they say about uh, people who become infatuated and they kind of lose all sense of their selves and stuff like that. It's there's some there's some science behind it to explain why why you lose your wits when you're around people you like. Taking a big hit of love. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so uh, quickly before we start going into some of like the chemicals and stuff like that, uh, neurotransmitters and hormones, sometimes used interchangeably. They're very similar, but they're like, there is a distinction between the two. Yes. Uh, so hormones generally are like produced throughout the body. So by different organs in the body. So everything from like your pituitary gland, but you can also be producing hormones in various other organs. And things your like sexual that. organs. Yep. That, that you know, is a big one. Yeah. Testes. Uh, ovaries. Ovaries. You're going to produce estrogen in the ovaries, uh, testosterone in the testes, things like that, right? Those aren't in the brain but they have an impact on how your brain processes things because, and how your body deals with itself. Yeah, because hormones can pass the blood-brain barrier, yeah. which is a thing that surrounds your brain that protects it and most stuff cannot pass through. Yeah. But hormones can. They can get into your brain where they might, uh, where they will mm -hmm. interact with your brain tissue. And uh, that is where neurotransmitters, which again have very similar functions to hormones, but neurotransmitters are produced in your brain. And, yeah. and they typically and neurotransmitters are typically dealing with the, the structures in the brain more than other organs so it's things like you know uh, um, that are carrying your signals across your synapses and things like mm -hmm. that and they can affect certain proteins in the brain and throughout the body but it's mostly in your kind of your central and peripheral nervous system so that's just sort of like this slight distinction between like hormones and neurotransmitters we will basically continue to use like the brush all term like and we'll just kind of refer to them almost as all the same but they are two kind of like distinct things. Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, but both are taken up by receptors in the brain, yep. right? Um, but your body can also actually reabsorb and break them down uh, mm -hmm. before they have a chance to interact with a receptor. So this can happen if you have uh, fewer receptors or if your receptors are damaged or worn out, which can happen from like drug use, for example. Um, there's a lot of mental and emotional health medications that work to prevent this reabsorption. So if your brain is like, it produces you know, serotonin, what everyone calls like the happy chemical. It produces serotonin, but it doesn't produce very much. And your body starts breaking it down before your brain has a chance to like absorb it. You can take certain medications that work to stop your body from breaking it down. So your brain actually has a chance to absorb it. Yeah. And uh, problems with hormone levels, neurotransmitter levels, or this like these receptor cells and the amount of them, this can cause emotional and mental health issues like ADD, ADHD, uh, anxiety, and depression. So fun. Mm-hmm. And these changes, uh, if you're going through changes in hormone and neurotransmitter levels, they can lead to more extreme conditions. They can also just change your mood and mm -hmm. do all of these sorts of things, like you might have noticed during puberty. Or like, uh, to use another example, right, like sometimes the, they talk about like roid rage, like yeah. when people are on steroids and they get very aggressive, because steroids will increase the amount of uh, testosterone in particular that you're producing, and it'll make you much more aggressive. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. And I mean, like, steroids, like, that's just, like, one small effect. Like, steroids are doing all sorts of stuff <laughs> to your body. That's why they're so, I mean, that's why they help enhance performance, but also, like, have all these, like, really clear indicators that you're on steroids. Yeah. We talked a little bit about steroids in our Olympics podcast, so if you are curious, mm -hmm. go check it. Yeah. So that's a little bit about what the what chemicals and how in the body they affect our behaviors and our moods. Yeah, more well, how on the body. Yeah. But there are some specific ones. There are ones that, like, like we're talking about, like, serotonin is going to come up again and dopamine will come up that are very universal. They dictate a lot of our different uh, response to stimuli in human society. But there's also some ones that have become particularly associated with love or bonding and things like that, as we'll talk about. Yes, indeed. Primarily one. I think you're thinking about it. Yeah, I think this is a good one to start yeah. with because I think this is the one that people will, if you were at, survey 100 people on the street that they might be able to come up with kind of would come up really frequently i think yeah that's the, the love drug yes yeah it's also called like the cuddle chemical mm -hmm. and it is mm -hmm. drum roll brrr, oxytocin yes that, that oxytocin <laughs> sorry uh, we were we were trying to figure out how to do the drum roll without uh without disturbing the microphone, the microphone yeah <laughs> but um, yes oxytocin the cuddle chemical um this is a uh hormone is this yeah. Yep, yep. yeah, hormone that is released in largest amounts when we're in close physical contact with people. So if you have friends who want a hug, go give them a hug. And I believe if you hug for 20 seconds... Yeah, I believe it's 20 seconds. 20 yeah. seconds, you actually get like a release of oxytocin. Mm -hmm. uh, because it's your, your body going like, oh, this is nice. And also, I'm going to encourage you to do this again mm -hmm. by giving you this hit of nice drugs. And oxytocin is... Uh it's really sort of associated with our longer term bonding. Mm -hmm. So uh, in the early parts of a relationship uh, or a romantic relationship in particular, like oxytocin levels start to build kind of slowly, but it's the more the long term relationships where like mm -hmm. oxytocin becomes kind of the main dictator of that attraction, essentially. Um, in the early phases, there's some other things that really like kind of drive that level of attraction. And sometimes what we'll refer to as like lust or things like that. that very, limerence. Yeah, limerence, which we'll talk about in a bit. Uh, this like that very initial phase. Sometimes like um, I think when we talk about limerence, like I'll equate it to like, the honeymoon 
honeymoon phase. Oh, yeah. It is like colloquially what we would talk about. Like, oh, you start dating someone, you go through the honeymoon phase where everything's great and you kind of ignore certain things about them. That's limerence. And we'll talk yeah. about that uh, in a bit. Yeah. But with uh, with oxytocin, yeah, this is the one that is, it's not just romantic relationships. Yeah. It's romantic, platonic, and familial love. Mm-hmm. And this is the one that helps create bonds with other people and a sense of trust. And, this oxytocin. and like most of the hormones and neurotransmitters we're going to talk about, this is not exclusive to humans. No. Oxytocin appears in a wide range of animal species, and it's really important in other mammals as well for this same type of bonding, in particular familial bonding between like parent and offspring in certain phases of, uh, of like development. Or um, the animals who will uh, mate for life. Yep. Like why? Is it voles? I think it's I think voles. voles. I, you're thinking of, I know you're thinking of, there is a rodent that, yeah. that does mate for life. Yeah. Yeah. And that is, or that is one of the first times that I heard about oxytocin, or it was one that was used a lot as an example, was like, voles mate for life, yep. which we'll have to double check on, but yes. Um, yeah, and this one is also released in large amounts during sex. Which obviously makes sense. They're a requirement for physical closeness when yep. you're having sexual intercourse, so. <laughs> and if this is the one that's going to cause more of that longer term love, it makes sense that our brains evolutionarily would be like, okay, we're going to release a lot of this during sex because sex can lead to baby and a human baby has a higher chance of success if both parents are involved in the picture. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. These are all very evolutionarily um, built up responses to these chemicals yes. and stuff. And we'll talk a little bit about like, yeah, how it plays a role in like parent offspring bonding and how, mm-hmm. how it can inf- affect, um, you know, the mental well-being of a child well into their life. Um, Yep. Yeah, based on the bonding that they experience in the very early childhood. It's quite interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, but let's go over a few more of the love chemicals. So oxytocin is kind of the big flagship one. It's the one that always comes up around this time of year around love and the one that's kind of, I think most people would associate. And then the others are just not as flashy because they're used in lots of other areas. Um, so in that, so what are some of the other, so I guess we kind of talked about long-term love. We're kind of going backwards now. Yeah. <laughs> but like that initial attraction, that period of lust when you're, when you're really, really getting after someone. What are some of the chemicals that uh, play a role there? Well, testosterone is one. Yes. Uh, that's any red-blooded male can attest to. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> or, you know, any red-blooded human. Yeah, exactly. Well, testosterone is not exclusive to men. It's just yeah. in higher, higher levels than men. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so this is present in all people. Uh, and impacts libido. A lot. Yes. Very important in your uh, sex drive, Mm -hmm. as it were. Yep. Um, And so this one is produced a lot in men as they start going through puberty, and it helps to develop male sex characteristics like hair growth on your face and body and Mm -hmm. all of that fun stuff. And it impacts uh, on sperm production and fertility. And as men age, their testosterone levels tend to drop. That's a standard thing. And then women... uh, Typically, like we said, have a lot less. Again, check out our Olympics podcast. We do talk a bit more about testosterone in women there. Mm-hmm. Um, and if women have really elevated levels of, of testosterone or these androgens, right, like hormones that promote male secondary sex characteristics, it can lead to uh, like expression of male secondary sex characteristics like that facial hair, that sort of thing. Um, but also there's been some evidence that polycystic ovary syndrome uh, which causes infrequent or prolonged periods and ovaries may develop numerous small collections of fluid and fail to regular, regularly release eggs. This uh, condition has with it elevated levels of testosterone. So then there's kind of like your classic culprits, the the neurotransmitters that we associate with like all human kind of 
activity really. So there's dopamine and serotonin. Serotonin plays a little bit of a lower level. And yeah. in fact, there's some studies to show that like in the very early stages of like lust, that your serotonin levels are actually depressed, that they're kind of um, artificially kept lower when oh. you're kind of under the influence of love, uh, <laughs> lust in particular. Uh, but dopamine, right, is dopamine is really associated with our rewards systems. Yeah. So how the, the things that our external environment stimuli tells us like we want more of right so like the classic example is like junk food releases a lot of do dopamine mm -hmm. because junk food contains a lot of the things that we are hardwired as a species to desire because they're high energy foods um and things that typically in nature are not always easy to come by so it's you know you think about your chips that's salt and fat which are things that like the body really desires or like candies the sugar right yeah. and so those are things that are if you can find foods in the wild that are in high abundance of those, that's a good thing. So your body rewards you for eating them because it wants to teach you that, well, you should seek out more of this. So obviously some similar uh, characteristics there with love. Yes. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. Or with uh, games like Candy Crush. Yeah. You know, mm -hmm. Any game that is uh, fairly low, like, energy and fairly low, like, buy-in, mm -hmm. but you get all of these, like, flashing lights and yep. and these easy easy rewards every one of those gives your brain a little hit of dopamine and that's what keeps you playing yeah i i once heard it said that um you know because like you can kind of hack your like we talked about with habits right like you're kind of hacking your reward system to kind of train yourself to accept this small reward for whatever you're doing right like the mm -hmm. dopamine hit and then just to the point where it becomes like intrinsic and i once heard it said that like you know so with video games right you think about like um, you know, role-playing games are really popular or whether you, any game where you like leveling up your character, right? Yeah. Those are really popular, like all the online games these days, like where you're doing some sort of grind or whatever. And they would always say like, if you had some meter where it was like every time you did X number of push-ups, you like gained a level of strength. Like if, if, you, if yeah. physical fitness was associated with that same sort of thing, like, oh, you gain 100 XP, now you're level two. It's like, oh, you do 100 push-ups, now you're level two and you're just this much stronger. Yeah. Like everybody would be like, everybody be the rock kind of thing because it's so hacked into our um, reward systems and stuff like that. Unless you started operating on the same thing that a lot of video games do where it gets harder to increase in level, the yeah. higher the level you go, mm -hmm. which is actually a thing, we're off topic now, but this is actually mm -hmm. a thing that happens like with working out in the beginning, like with weight loss or muscle yeah. like strength gain, you'll see a lot of gains uh, really early. And then like the stronger you get, the harder it gets to build more strength, mm -hmm. right? Or if you're trying to lose weight, you might lose a lot of weight really early on, but then as you go, it gets harder to lose the same amount yeah. of weight. So it it kind of happens that way. Well, it's kind of like that with love, right? Oh. Really, really <laughs> early on, love develops very, very quickly. And then sometimes for some relationships that are not meant to last, because not everything's meant to last, that that feeling starts to fade very quickly. And then it becomes way more difficult to build that same level of connection with the person after this initial period, which is called... Limerence. Excellent. Yes, fantastic. <laughs> uh, yeah, every time I look at it, I say limerick in my head. Well, I think um, of that same thing too. I'm like, there must be some sort of etymology there, yeah. maybe. Maybe something Maybe the like Irish describe it. Is it from a Gaelic word? I don't know. I don't know. None of these things. <laughs> we, have, we have more to look up. Um, but yeah, so limerence is like the first rush of romance. And I think of this as like rose-colored glasses, right? Where you meet a person, they seem great and attractive in every way, and you minimize their flaws and all the stuff that annoys you because they're just so great. 
That's interesting because, like, I, I guess just me personally, I always associate rose-colored glasses with a retrospective thing. Like, mm-hmm. I think of, I just, I feel like I've always used it that way. Like, oh, like, you know, you, you, you're leaving high school and then all of a sudden, like, all of the, like, annoying stuff that happens over high school or, like, your beef with people sort of starts to fade away because yeah. you look back and all you see are the good things. But I guess, yeah, it's just, it's a perception thing. So Yeah, anyway, it's just, just, it's just putting on the rose-colored glasses and then you don't see any red flags. You yeah, that's a class. That's like a classic one. <laughs> What's that from? Oh, that's from Bojack Horseman. Oh, it is right, from Bojack right. Horseman. <laughs> I guess when you look at someone through rose-colored glasses, you don't see. Or all red, the red flags just look like, like flags. flags. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's a Great. good quote. Yeah. yeah, that that show has some really good quotes, but you got to go through some rough stuff <laughs> to get there. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so that's a uh, limerence. Is this rose-colored glasses? It's the the initial. Uh, another quote from Psychology Today: the initial and sometimes obsessive stage of romance. The time frame in which people are most likely to behave irrationally. Yeah, that's never happened to me before. <laughs> are, you, are you looking at the specific exa- example of schoolyard fights? No, definitely oh. a schoolyard <laughs> fight. Um, no, but like specifically, like I can, I can pinpoint many times that uh, I have behaved irrationally yeah. in the in the uh, throes of limerence. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> As you're thinking about someone, you're like, oh my god, they they have all these things. Could. Could it be? Oh, I'm sure I have some, like, super cringy journal entries from, like, (laughs) high school university days of, like, oh, my God, this is my person. This person's amazing. I've never felt this way before. Yeah. (laughs) And then then, then nothing ever happens. (laughs) Yeah. And then three months later, and you you get to know a bit more, and then you're like, hmm. If you don't cringe at yourself looking back, then you haven't grown enough. Also, maybe you just weren't being honest enough about your feelings back then. Well, 100%. Yeah. This, is, this is my point. This is, this is what I'm um, trying to say. But as, as silly as limerence can be, and as much as it can lead to... Or devastating. Yep. Also that. Uh, it's also necessary to forming longer bonds because, again, of evolution. Woo! <laughs> uh, another Psychology Today quote on this is, the short ter- or that this, this limerence, is the short-term glue that keeps couples together long enough to see if there's something more to the relationship than the rush of initial attraction. Mm. Limerence is an evolutionary imperative, keeping our couples bonded until they intelligently decide to either break up or build a life together. Yeah, when I read that quote, when you put that in the notes, I was like, oh, this, like, that totally makes so much sense. That, like, if we, because I, <laughs> I feel like I have friends that kind of are, have the opposite problem, where they're, like, they're so hypercritical of people when they first meet them mm. that they are not giving like, yeah, give them a chance. yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's like, they're very wary. They're overly wary of this sort of the limerence yeah. and then they're not giving it any chance. And so you're not even, and, and a lot of times too, I think the things that people pick up or pick out in that initial, like, Oh, maybe I'm not interested in this person are very, are often very surface level things. Yeah. They're like the level of education that they have, the type of job they hold. Like they're things that are easy to spot on the surface level that don't actually always indicate like how strong a deeper attraction or like, um, bond would be. Yeah. And words are hard. <laughs> <laughs> and you humans do that with everything, right? Like we're so, yeah, yeah. Like, you, you can get to this like over analytical point. And that's actually a thing that, like, some math makers will say is, like, well, you have to actually give them a shot. Mm-hmm. You know? You have to actually, <laughs> like... You oh, have matchmakers. This... <laughs> I thought you said math makers. <laughs> so what is a math maker? I like that you were just going to go with it, though. You were like, All I right. was. I was just going to 100%. Mm-hmm. I was like, you either said map maker or math maker, and then I finally included... <laughs> matchmaker. Yeah. Because people tend to go to them when they're 
not in their early 20s, right? Like when they're a little bit older and they're like, oh, I'm looking for, and then they like pull out their scroll of like 90 items yeah. that they must have. And they're yeah. like, okay, you're going to have to pare that down. This is one of my things with like, sorry, big, big diatribe. I'm going to 100% get on my soapbox here. <laughs> this is one of the things that like, I used to really like that show, How I Met Your Mother. Definitely watch, like, you know, my family yeah. used to watch it all the time. Yeah. It's like, watched it during its initial run. But I have come to like very much dislike How I Met Your Mother. It's a good show. It's funny. There's great moments in it. Blah, blah, blah. It's a fine show. It should not have gone on for nine seasons. It, well, that's that's a whole separate issue. <laughs> but my big problem is with like, obviously with the main character, Ted Mosby, is just that like basically the whole, and because it's, yeah, I get it. it he's the point of view character. It's a tort. He's an unreliable narrator. It's a story being told entirely from his perspective, blah, blah, blah. But he's so fixated on a person with a specific set of characteristics as his like soulmate that it uh, and I just think like to to listen to that for like nine seasons really just like undermines this idea and it basically means that you know you are living your life expecting another person to fit perfectly into your life as a puzzle as opposed to viewing that person as a complete person in and of their own right yep. with their own tapestry that you also need to fit into to. and so it's not about just fitting into one other person's you know love-sized hole it's about you know, meshing and building a life together. I I really wish I had picked a different word, but we're, we're here now. Um, anyway, diatribe over. <laughs> no, but I'm going to continue it. Okay, because excellent. I... Diatribe continued. <laughs> diatribe retaken. Yeah. Retaken up. Yeah. Just like all I'm your passing the hormones. baton. Yeah. All right. There's, there's too many metaphors here. Uh, but yeah, so it's the idea of like the puzzle piece one. Mm -hmm. That's one that uh, a comedian, Daniel Sloss, I recommend this to everybody. <laughs> so now all of you have to listen to it too. So Daniel Sloss has a two-part comedy special on Netflix. And the second one of which, watch the first one first because Don't otherwise... promote other people's stuff unless they're going to cross-promote us. I'm just, I'm totally joking. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I'm going to do it anyway. Um, <laughs> so the, uh, yeah, the first one is about like the importance of humor in dark moments and I definitely recommend it. It's just not pertinent to our conversation right now. Um, but the second one, Jigsaw, is literally, it's mostly, it's largely about this concept of mm. like, you're, you're told when you're, he was told when he was young that, um, like, you, you build a jigsaw and, like, that's what you're doing with your life and everyone is trying to build their jigsaw, but everyone's forgot, like, no one has the box, right? So no one knows what it's supposed to look like. But the center of your jigsaw is empty until you find the person you're meant to be with. And then you, like, put them into the center of your jigsaw and everything kind of falls into place around it. And he talks about, like, how toxic this idea is of, like, no one is waiting to... Or like no one is just the center of a jigsaw, right? Like everyone else is their own puzzle. Yeah. And then you are working on a puzzle. And then... He has a funny joke about how now when you find a person that you really like and you want to like build a life together, now you have to build a jigsaw together, <laughs> right? Like you have mm -hmm. to build a jigsaw as like, yeah. now it's two people working on one jigsaw and not just like, oh, I'm taking you and you're fitting in here. There's also uh, Shel Silverstein has a book, uh, Shel Silverstein, the poet, uh, has a book called The Missing Piece. Mm -hmm. This was actually recommended to, a fr uh, recommended to me by a friend a few years ago and it like kind of like turned a light bulb on for me. And it's the idea of like, this person was, they thought they were a missing piece. So they're looking for the person that they fit in with. And then as, as it goes, as the story continues, they, they can't find someone that they fit in with, right? Like nothing is the right shape or they're the right shape for a while. And then it starts to grow. So it doesn't fit anymore. And then one day something rolls along and it's like, instead of having a missing piece, it's just like perfectly round. It's a circle. It's not missing a piece. So it's like, you have to like, don't be trying to fit together with someone else to be whole be whole on your own. And then when you come together, you can be like so much greater than your parts. Mm -hmm. All right. I think we'll, okay. we should, we'll step off the soapbox now. 
For now. I, for now. <laughs> Save it for the end. Oh. I've said my piece. Sarah said her piece. Um, so, yeah, sorry. So to go back to kind of uh, love and art, in particular, we're, we're really focused, like, um, right now on this kind of, like, the initial outset of a partnership, really. Yeah. When, when you first start kind of dating someone um, or seeing someone romantically. And a lot of people, uh, there's sort of a... I don't know if you ever you ever use the term like serial monogamous. Yep, yep. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's like I think we all have that friend or person, or maybe we are that person who like every time they get out of a relationship, they're immediately in another relationship. Yeah. And there's like all the relationships are always kind of like buttressed up against each other. And and they're typically long. Like or they Sometimes. Can, sometimes. Sometimes. Sometimes there's people that move, you know, they're never going past this limerence stage, and as soon as that kind of that that aspect of it fades, they're on to the next person. True. Um and so there is some characterization of this of love and the sort of psychological and physiological sort of reaction to it that's classified like as an addiction. So in the same way that Sarah was sort of saying, like your brain on drugs, your brain on love, the same sort of idea. Yeah, and like healthy love is not as much of an addiction because to be an addiction, something typically needs uh, directly related negative life consequences. So if it's just healthy love, like you have a partner and you love and support each other and you love and support each other in growing and doing what you need to make you happy and you're working together on your jigsaw, that's like chemically it still has the addictive properties, but it's not an addiction in the sense of like it is not destructive to your life, right? Um, so and so this could be destructive love, it is sometimes called. This is the idea that Davis was talking about of like those serial monogamists, right? Of like they need that feeling of love to feel complete or whole. And there's a lot of people like this because our society tells us that we have to be like this. Uh, <laughs> but I found a good quote um, from an article. When a person in love repeatedly seeks contact with another individual for physical intimacy, <clears throat> booty calls, uh, attention, or merely to be in the same room, it is often to, to secure momentary feelings of intense pleasure and to relieve obsessive thought patterns about the object of his, his or her passion. If this sort of behavior threatens the individual or another's safety, mental, or physical health, or incur serious social or legal costs, it may rise to the level of an addiction. So yeah, these are the the problematic ones. So obviously the the far side of this is behavior like stalking and uh, you know murder. Like came across a stat of in 2011. So I know it's a bit of an old stat, but in 2011 in the U.S., 10% of murders were committed by the victim's lover. That is an FBI stat. Uh, so there's there's that side where things get like pretty bad. But I mean. There's, this is where all the like rules when you start dating someone come into play. Like, I, I've never really prescribed to this, but the whole like, you go on a date and like, you can't call them. And now we don't call people anyway, we just text. But the mm -hmm. idea of like... Or you have to wait three days to text them, that kind of stuff. Yeah. And if you, if you like oh, yeah, text them too stuff. much, then it's like, oh, you're like too eager. So then mm, if you're too eager, then like, you could be one of these people. And then like, you need to, like, you need to avoid this. And also if you're too eager, then they're not going to want you as much. But the idea of like... Don't play games, people. Yes. If you like someone, be honest about it. Be honest about it. Be but, vulnerable. <laughs> but also the like, I j if it when it's a situation of like, I just met you, we went on one date. I do not need a good morning text from you every day, right? Because That's fair. that is getting into the range of like, you are taking up too much of like you. This makes it feel like you feel you're entitled to more of my time than you are. You mm -hmm. know. Mm -hmm. It it was like um I saw this really good piece of advice the other day of like 
if uh, if someone says like what well, like if you're dating someone and they say they drop the L bomb right like um, L bomb er, earlier love earlier them. than you're expecting right um like they say that they love you and you're not ready to say it is like this quote of like um we're reading this you and I are reading the same book but you're a few chapters ahead of me oh. where it's like where you can see the trajectory of like I could see like I can feel that I'm starting to maybe fall in love with you but I'm not quite at the same place that you are there. And sometimes that's what happens. Um, me and my friends, we used to have this joke, like um, that flirting is in the eye of the flirty. Mm. Uh, so like <laughs> flirting is really all about how it's received. And it's the same sort of thing about how like you watch a romantic comedy and like half of the behaviors that uh, the romantic lead will do to the other romantic lead in a romantic comedy would be like, hella creepy Super in real life creepy. if the other person was not into it especially yeah. so it's like it's so much and it's like because some people they might go on a date with someone and they might love the good morning text every day but it's so it, there's like there is no hard line and then it's yeah. so and then even like you know at one point in a relationship that might really put you off but then at another point in the relationship that might be like exactly what you desire from somebody yeah so our things our feelings about it change um that's where think the very, very open and honest communication are very important. Because yeah. then, like, the beginning of a relationship is a lot of guessing. Yeah. And that is what leads to, like, the stress and the anxiety. And someone can, it's like, okay, well, I'm doing what works for me, but it's absolutely not working for you. So now you think that I'm this kind of way. But if you just told me that you didn't want mm -hmm. to talk every day, that's fine. Right? Like, but people don't want to have that conversation because mm -hmm. too much too soon. And there's all the, like, the, yeah. like, the games Yep. Everyone says they don't want to play the games, but everyone plays the games. <laughs> well, there, and there's a difference between, like, playing games and, like, the 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 sort of the societal norms yeah. that we live in, right? Playing games is, like, it's, it, it's manipulative, right? Yes. Like, you're aware of what you're doing and you're making certain choices because you're trying to elicit or manipulate certain types of behaviors out of the other person. But there's certain sort of societal things that we just, like, kind of do, yeah. right? Um... I can't think of a couple, I can't think of any like good kind of neutral examples. Well, I think just like but anytime, like, like if you meet someone and you like them and like mm -hmm. you were talking and if you had a really good conversation and then you want to continue the conversation, you, you could say to yourself like, okay, I'm not going to, I'm not going to text them. But then you end up watching a thing and it reminds you of something you were talking about. So you want to text them and tell them, but like you don't want to be over eager, but like you want to tell them just because it came up naturally. Mm -hmm. Right. Or like. Even with friends sometimes, if you're not super close and you're like, man, I've texted them every day for seven days. Maybe I should not text them today. Mm. It's like, I don't want to annoy them. But when it comes up, like if the topic just comes up, sometimes you want to. Yeah. But well, at the same time, if you just meet someone and they start texting you every day, that can be a red flag. That maybe they're not so good at being independent. And if that's an important factor to you, then that's a problem, you know? I, I don't know. <laughs> I would, I think we're going too deep into it now. Because like, I think that there's all these things like... They're so individualistic. Yes. There, there is no hard and fast rule. And like, I think, and that's would be my overall thing about the whole like love advice sort of thing. It's like there is no single person can sit there and tell you like, well, if they do this, this is what that means. Because it's like, no. every, we are all, like we were saying, we are all an individual tapestry. And we're all, <laughs> well, tapestries now, not just puzzles. I like tapestries because it, it implies <laughs> like, I don't know, a big, beautiful, medieval carpet on the wall with stuff on it if we had merch i would so want to make shirts that said like i love tapestries period <laughs> yeah i want a tapestry anyway um <laughs> so all this to say like but this is interesting because we have really been talking about this like initial onset of a relationship and there's uh you know sort <laughs> there's of there's more to a relationship than that exactly and there's this sort of um 
there are sort of three main like terms that I kind of came across in the research for this. And it like the the difference between sort of these different phases almost was like and, and it was lust, love, and attraction. And as we'll talk a little bit too about like bonding, non-romantic bonding or attachment as well. Um, so lust, which was primarily what we've been talking about to this point is yes. driven by this sense of sexual gratification, the hormones of estrogen and testosterone. And it does, it stems from our evolutionary need to reproduce. We're sexual organisms. We need to have sex in order to have more children to continue the species. So there's deeply ingrained responses in our psyches that drive this desire, not in everyone, but in a lot of the human species. And if it didn't exist in such like sort of the majority of individuals, then humans would not exist anymore. Yep. And so uh, the hypothalamus also plays a role. And this is sort of one of our regular, this is like one of the very ancient parts of the brain, one of the parts that evolved very early, and it dictates a lot of our homeostasis. So again, this is, again, this is stuff that's super deeply entrenched in the way that our brain has worked before we were even like humans as a species, right? Because again, there's elements of this in other animals. We just wouldn't characterize it as lust because lust also has a sort of societal, um, not stigma, but I mean, there is a stigma, but a societal sort of meaning. Like lust yeah. has dual meanings as both through the science sort of phenomena and as a social phenomena. Yeah, and in humans, lust is about sex, not about reproduction. Yeah. Whereas in animals, we don't think of lust in the same way because we don't, like a lot of, an most animals mm -hmm. don't have sex Unless it's to reproduce. Exactly. Right? So There's, there isn't really mm -hmm. that lust because it's yeah. it's just reproduction. Yeah. It's easier to list the animals that have sex for gratification and not just uh, reproduction than it is easier to list the animals that have sex for where those two are intertwined inter uh, unchangeably. Yeah. Right? It's like dolphins. And, and bonobos. And, yeah. <laughs> Thank you. I'm glad you could remember the other one because I was like, there's two, but I There's can't two. remember the other one. Um, so like lust, again, that very, very early stage, this kind of limerence, and then it gives way to deeper forms of attraction. So attraction to... Yeah. Oh, good segue. <laughs> Could have been smoother. But um, <laughs> so it's a related but distinct phenomena. So this is driven by other brain chem chemicals like norepinephrine, dopamine, and serotonin. So they're, they're more reward behavior driven. Uh, so lust and attraction can occur together or they can occur separately. And this is where, so I, I misattributed this, but this is where there's increases in dopamine mm. uh, in this attraction phase, but decreased levels of serotonin. Because again, it's this reward system. And serotonin is the happiness one, right? Yeah, or... dopamine is your reward and serotonin, yeah, well, it's what kind of the mood, it's more the mood regulator oh, okay. is what we consider. So often people with anxiety disorders, they, uh, like Sarah said, your their serotonin does not sit it's re-upped it's taken up back by the brain it doesn't sit in those neuro um in its um in the synapses long enough to have its intended effect so often uh really aggressive drugs to deal with certain types of depression or anxiety disorders uh are called like serotonin selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors ssris yeah they allow serotonin to sit in these receptors for longer and trigger the response they're supposed to before they're reuptaked by the brain and dissolved or made into new stuff. Yeah. Like Their brains have really mm -hmm. aggressive custodial crews. Yeah. Then we move into sort of 
the attachment phase. And attachment is not exclusive to romantic relationships. It plays a role in our familial relationships, in our friendship relationships, our societal relationships. And again, this is the one where we're talking about it's driven by more by oxytocin and another chemical va- uh, vasopressin that I neglected to look up, unfortunately. <laughs> Me too. Yeah. <laughs> but it's in there. Yeah. But so this is a good segue a little bit to talking about um, attachment but I think before we do that, we want to talk a little bit about, like, why do we know all this stuff about love? I mean, obviously, Sarah and I are spouting off a little bit about our own opinions about dating. <laughs> Take those with a big grain of salt. But the actual <laughs> chemicals and stuff. And so we've learned those because people have studied this now and they've studied the brain and they've yeah. used functional magnetic resonance imaging or fMRIs, if you've heard of those. Mm-hmm. Um, and fMRIs work by essentially when any part of the brain is activated by a thought, a substance, movement, emotion or anything else. The blood flow to that area of the brain increases, and fMRIs can track both the location and degree of this activity. So, fMRIs, big machine, looking at your brain. Uh, when If you've ever seen a show where it's like, oh, this part of their brain is lighting up. It's the increased blood flow, because that part of your brain is working now, so it needs more oxygen to work, so it gets that increased blood flow. And so they started doing studies where they stuck people in these big MRI machines and started showing them uh, different external stimuli so this is where you again can link it to like drugs and stuff so uh, an addictive drug when you take it that's your external stimuli or external stimuli can be a picture of someone you love so i have two studies to mention here one very small sample size uh but 17 people this is in the journal journal of neurophysiology and uh so they had 17 people who self-reported that they were intensely in love very passionately in love um, and then in the fMRI, they were shown pictures of their beloved, and then they were shown pictures of familiar people, but not beloved people. Mm. And this had, like, th- there were only 17 uh, subjects, but it was very clear across them that intense romantic love, so their beloved, uh, activates the striatum, which is home of the nucleus accumbens, which is a region of the brain that is often referred to as the pleasure center. And this intense romantic love can also activate the insula, which is a region of the brain that assigns value to pleasurable and life-sustaining activities, which ensures that we continue engaging in these activities. Um, And both of these parts of the brain are in, like, the central part of our brain. Like, when you start getting... I'm trying to point to it, but obviously I have more brain in the way. Yeah, like the the central part of the brain. So that old part of the brain again, like we were saying. Yeah. The general good rule of thumb about brain anatomy is that the deeper structures in your brain are generally the parts of the brain that from an evolutionary perspective of all life on earth have existed for longer. So sometimes we talk about... um, The reptilian brain? Yeah, exactly. The lizard brain. Because like, oh, that's my lizard brain. That's why I'm (laughs) like, that's why I just had this reaction. That's because those are like lizards some of the oldest animals on on the planet um some of the earliest to evolve they have some of the earliest brain structures and they are structures that are just specifically driven with the sort of life keeping yeah survival mechanism. yeah survival yeah. Mechanism. Yeah, <laughs> that's, the word. that's the word i'm looking for <laughs> and then as you get like like with humans with our prefrontal cortex we've talked about the one right behind behind our forehead mm. so obviously very close to the outside very highly evolved very yeah. differentiated compared to other animals yep. so yeah so the fact that these uh these systems we're lighting up that are so internal to our brains really kind of highlights that this is a ancient programming deeply rooted in our brains functions. Yeah. Uh, And then there was another study that was published in the archives of sexual behavior. And this looked at the difference between sexual attraction and long-term love. 
So they, this was more of a meta-analysis. They analyzed the results of 20 separate fMRI trials, um, like the one we just talked about, monitoring subjects' reactions to a wide variety of stimuli. So they looked at photos of a loved one, photos of a stranger, photos of familiar but not beloved people, looking at pornographic photos, etc. All these different photos. And both sexual desire and long-term love activate the nucleus accumbens, that part we mentioned, but only love activates the insula. And the insula, again, was the region of the brain that assigns value to pleasurable and life-sustaining activities. So the one that's like, to make sure we continue engaging in them, that was only the romantic love mm. that activated that part. It's pretty cool. So a higher value stimuli than the other stimuli. Yeah. Yeah. Very interesting. Mm. Uh, interesting little note about, um, particularly with medical studies, is you will often see really low sample sizes. Obviously, yeah. this type of stuff as well, because you have to find people that are going to self-report yeah, certain things. I am know? intensely in love yeah. right now. And so you're going to you're <laughs> going to filter out like a huge number of people that are yeah. willing to participate in this study. Uh, and particularly when you think about a lot of these types of study respondents are like university students that are doing lots it for like of 50 university bucks. undergrads. Yeah, exactly. Not right? even fifty bucks. When I was a, uh, I know that's I, fifty I took... bucks would be a lot. <laughs> also, like I took. Uh, psychology in undergrad mm -hmm. and one of our things was you had to participate in two research studies yeah <laughs> like you just yeah. that was part of your yeah. to get your course credit you often often they will give some level of compensation because it's part of the ethics requirement um because depending on the because it's it's, it's anytime you're studying on humans and doing any research on them there's really 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 stringent ethics requirements um this kind of comes from a long legacy of human experimentation obviously big popular <laughs> example being the stanford prison experiment yeah. but basically but there were there were ethics in place at the time that you were supposed to follow but now it's become very very systemized in academia mm -hmm. and particularly when you're studying humans so one of the ways that you can get away around so if your study has um some level of undue like not undue harm, because if it has that level of undue harm, you just never get approved to yeah, do it. Yeah. <laughs> but like, you know, someone has to take the time out of their day to do this thing, right? Uh, one of the ways to mitigate that impact is to offer a level of compensation. But if you offer too much compensation, then it can also be an ethical issue because yeah. you're manipulating people into doing the study. And particularly if you're studying like, you know, at-risk populations or low-income populations, you're yeah. offering some crazy cash reward, but they have to unveil all their deepest darkest secrets and you're going to publish it you know there's all these really complex ethical standards not my point my point was <laughs> that you'll typically see these lower um sample sizes in medical studies too because you don't actually need as large of a sample size to make sort of like medical science if that mm -hmm. makes sense um you do you do large-scale statistics you have to have huge n numbers like huge numbers of samples and things like that to make like population level statistics but in medicine especially you can publish journal journal articles on like single patients or single cases yeah. that's why i call them case studies sometimes right. um particularly because like for example if someone has some sort of like rare disease you may never encounter another incident of this disease in your entire life. So sometimes doctors will like jump at the chance to have a, if they have a patient like that, because they'll want to try to publish on that patient right. because it's such a unique case. So just an interesting little thing about, uh, about some um, medical, studies. medical science and studies <laughs> and ethics <laughs> in our, in our podcast about love. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I love ethics as should you all i think um okay so that's a little bit about like the lust and the limerence and the romantic love and where love is sort of like centered physiologically like mm -hmm. what what is playing a role in what the feelings love? of love that we are having exactly so 
let's talk a little bit, let's move away a little bit away from that romantic love. And I want to talk a bit more about like bonding and attachment. Because we talked right at the outset about like oxytocin. Yep. Right? This big, the bonding drug. The vol one. Obviously plays a big role in um, long-term relationships and long-term pair, like mating pair bonding in many, many different animals. But another type of bonding and attachment that's super, super critical for most mammals, especially, but also some avian species and things like that yeah. is uh, in, is the parent offspring. And in particular with mothers and, and infants. Uh, so this is super important and it's driven by, there's a ton of, you know, science and uh, research that shows like, and, and just physiological uh, effects that, drive this sort of attachment and this like very very early bonding speaking principally about um like human parent and infant bonding a lot of that begins actually in utero in yeah. the final trimester of a pregnancy is so at that point in a pregnancy the fetus has started to develop uh the olfactory senses so you have the nose the smell and uh their hearing organs right so they're starting to be able to hear most of their environment is um, like the amniotic fluid. So that's mostly what they're, they're smelling. And mostly what they're hearing is actually like their mother's heartbeat. But they'll start to recognize, you know, their mother's voice and ah. things like that in utero. So these... Or Mozart. Yeah, well, that's why. So, right. <laughs> so, you know, they have, they say sometimes, yeah, like you should yeah. play music for your baby when they're in the womb and stuff. Well, it is because at a certain point they have developed the organs to receive that information at least somewhat. But this is where some of that starts to happen. But this bonding continues as the child matures and it has, it changes forms, but it has impacts like all the way through throughout a child's life. And then there's different stages of it all through a, um, uh, a child's Human's life. life. Human's life. Thank you. <laughs> so then you're born. You uh, are, you are pushed man. out into the wide world and very, very quickly at birth, infants are attracted to their mother's voice and smell. Uh, and in, in including the scent of amniotic fluid, which obviously is mostly like gone at this point. Um, but it's some of these things that uh, start to drive like, uh, so mother's odor can help soothe infants. It's why it's sometimes important to allow, um, I can't remember, it has a name. I unfortunately am not like a doula or a midwife, so I don't really know all of this stuff. But um, where like after given birth often before cutting the umbilical cord they'll lay the baby down on uh the like, mother's oh yeah, I've yeah, seen that, yeah on the mother's chest or stomach and it, again it's to help because that odor will help soothe the infant ah. right because it's something that it's what and you think about it right we've i think we talked about this a bit with early childhood yeah go listen to our early childhood education podcast we talk a lot about development on that one exactly right and one of the things when you're an infant you are absorbing an incredible new amount of information it's you, constant you have existed <laughs> in this dark watery tub for <laughs> nine months and then all of a sudden you're thrust out into this wide world and you are just inundated with stimuli and that nine months, you don't have, like, consciousness of your stimuli for most of that. Exactly. Like, so. object permanence doesn't happen until, what, it's like 18 months or something like that? Yeah. Yeah, I don't remember. We'll have to listen to the early childhood <laughs> podcast. Yeah. yeah, clearly we need to remember. But, yeah, so, you know, yeah, you're not even really fully aware of, like, yourself at this point. But you can recognize a few things that were consistent in your environment beforehand. So, like, your mother's odor, the odor of amniotic fluid, um, certain sounds and things like that. Yeah, it's really brings us, like more the animal side, right? Like yeah. before your prefrontal cortex has developed very much, you, you're you working off your senses. 
working off the smells you know, the touch you know, the sounds you know, all that sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. So uh, this is something that starts to help organize the infant's behavior for nursing, right? So for breastfeeding. Mm -hmm. And it allows, and then it allows you to basically build you building up onto like a platform. So it allows you in the first few days of life, the infant will start to learn other cues and they'll be able to recognize their mother with thing, details such as like facial features and stuff like this. So, and this is a two-way street, this, this bonding as well. So this is happening in the other direction too, because this is the time where the caregiver is now rapidly learning to how to recognize the infant and the mm -hmm. cues of their infant, the nonverbal cues, which are very critical to their development uh, all throughout their life. And even with the, with like babies and their, their mother in particular, but with their primary care, caregiver, it takes, I forget what age it is when like a child can look in the mirror and recognize themselves as separate from their mother. Mm -hmm. Because there is a period of time where the child doesn't have any separate sense of self, right? Like yeah. they are the being that's taking care of them. Yeah. And I didn't really, and even in this article that I, um, some of the articles I was pulling from for this section, like they did talk about that a little bit where it's like, you know, first few months you know, mother leaves the room, it's like the world has ended, yeah. right? Because they, the child has no understanding of, again, that object permanence. They don't know if the mother's going to come back. It's like separate. Like a dog. Anxiety. Yeah. And then it <laughs> is by something by it's like, you know, two to three years or something like that is when the infant will start to recognize that, like, they'll start to have a larger understanding of that, like, gone does not mean gone forever. Yeah. Like there's, they've come to trust that the parent will return and they have this better understanding of sort of stimuli in their environment uh, and they'll be and then again yeah they start to recognize themselves a bit more and are not um and are independent now of their of their mother well that's if they have if they've been raised in like a really good situation and they have like good attachments oh yes we will get there oh, we will okay. guess to to when this doesn't happen the way it's supposed to okay um but really all this is to say like this is there's a dual function to this entire sort of physiological process and that it's one it's to ensure that an infant remains close enough to their caregiver and this is not just in humans mm -hmm. this is in animals as well to ensure their necessary care for survival yep uh, and in some animals, they've discovered that both nurturing and painful stimuli can be associated with caregiver support attachment. So basically, it means that like um, painful stimuli is not necessarily a like negative indicator in some of those animals of like, oh, this is not my caregiver. Like sometimes the, the painful stimuli can also be associated with caregiver support. Like what? Right. Well, you think about, right, a lot of animals, they don't have hands. Oh, so like, I was thinking like cats picking up by the back of the neck. Yeah, exactly. Right. Okay. And the, and the, those sorts of trainings <clears throat> and things like that, that people, that uh, some animals will do. The second function is really is the quality of attachment and the associated sensory stimuli. They help organize the brain and they begin our behavioral development. And this is the, the thing that has impacts on our long-term emotional regulation. So basically, yeah, when you have really strong attachment and bonding in early childhood, it basically dictates your, your, it can dictate your behavioral regulation for your entire life. Yeah. It's called secure attachment. Yeah. Because you are secure in the attachment that you have with your, your caregiver, that they are going to take care of you, that you are safe. Mm -hmm. And then if that doesn't happen, if you have, um, I mean, typically you hear the terms abusive or, uh, is it neglectful? Negligent. Negligent, yeah. Mm -hmm. Negligent parenting. Um, then you develop insecure attachment. Yep. And this leads to a ton of issues with how you relate to people in your later life and the sorts of relationships you will seek out and end up in. Yeah, absolutely. Perfect. Yeah, exactly. So uh, really, it's, just, it's, it's really interesting to show how like critical this 
this early, early point. And to the point where like, this is all stuff that's happening bef like before you're verbally communicating with your child, but then also like even after your child becomes verbal and then even as they're like a young child and then into a young adult, like our understanding of our offspring's nonverbal cues and how we respond to that will contribute to secure bonding. Yeah. So, you know, if you have your moody teenager who says that they don't want to talk and all these sorts of things, as you start to learn the cues of like, no, they really don't want to talk. They're, they, they're handling it on their own and they don't need my help with this. And versus those cues of like, no, I'm like, they're, they do want some level of support, but on their own terms sort of thing. So this is how I should reach out to them. It's, it's complicated, right? Like, and I think yeah. I, I can imagine a bunch of people's brains are doing backflips yeah. over it, well, but I mean, you that's think, the point. Yeah, yeah. I think teenagers are a particularly difficult example, but like even with little kids, right? Yeah. Like if you ask a little kid and little kids, they're not always honest, right? Oh, yeah. Or, or they've had an experience where maybe they got upset about something and then an adult in their life got mad at them for it. So then the yeah. next time it happens, something might happen that, that upsets them. And so they almost start crying, but then they're trying to push it down and they're trying to not cry because someone got mad at them for crying. And then if you come up and you're like, hey, buddy, like, what's going on? Are you okay? They might be like, I'm fine. And then maybe they have an angry outburst or something. So, but that's, it's all in repression of the actual emotion based on the response that was given to them before when they expressed that emotion. Mm -hmm. So this is that like learning the child's behavior and learning their cues because Children are just little sponges for the emotions of everyone else around them. Mm -hmm. And their a child's responses are really just like they start playing the responses as it gave them a response or a reaction before. Yeah. Right? Like if it was a if they got what they wanted, like they threw a tantrum and they got a toy. They're probably gonna throw more tantrums because they're gonna get more toys. But you can also go the other way where they had a genuine like emotion of, yeah, I got scared by something, or like I cried and then the adult got mad at me and then so I learned that that's not a safe response to have, so I can't have that response. So you really have to, like, learn the child and respond to them in order to help develop that secure attachment so you don't end up with this insecure attachment that can lead to a lot of problems. And if you are uh, familiar with the therapy world at all, you've probably heard of, like, inner child work and, and inner child. No, and it sounds really frou-frou, but it really is, like, as adults, most of us are running programming that was given to us when we were little kids. Mm-hmm. And then if you don't, what they say, if you don't heal the inner child, if you don't like look back at what you went through and how you became who you are, you're never going to be able to become who you want to be because you'll be running program that an eight year old is controlling mm. or whatever. Yeah. So how do we know all of this? <laughs> Why do we know all this? Well, so obviously there's a long history of these things being studied, both medically and, and sort of psychology, psychologically. Uh, so really a lot of this comes back to Freud as most things in psychology mm. do. And Freud, you know, so a lot of hmm. a lot of Freud's methodologies were flawed. A lot of what Freud believed or, or taught, we know now with our greater understanding of psychology does not be true. Yeah. But there are things that underpin from what he he postulated in his time that underpin some of what we understand today. Yes. So originally Freud really believed, like Sarah said, like all our neuroses as adults were caused by aberrant experiences in our childhood, particularly in our childhood. Particularly with mothers. Yeah. Well, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Freud had, yeah. And some strong feelings. Some strong feelings in that regard. <laughs> but again, this is sort of one of those things where like what Freud really described was too rudimentary, was rudimentary to what our understanding is now. 
but it, you know, now we know a lot more about it, but it's still, there's still a connection there. So this is where it sort of began, but it was really studies in the fifties that began to change the paradigm. And there were combined combining understanding of animal studies. So this is the thing about a lot of this attachment bonding stuff is that it comes from animal studies mostly. Like the vole study. Exactly. And this is, again, because it's easier to do stuff on animals, particularly when you're messing with early childhood responses and things yeah. like that, than it is to do on humans because it's unethical. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Very so, unethical. But it's the combination of these animal studies and those on, like, orphaned children that helped create this understanding of how important early life attachment is for infant health. And not just orphaned children, but, like, you know, Freud and his, uh, some of the people who came after Freud, I forget all their names, but uh, Crash like Course... Uh, Young wasn't as bad. There were some ones who did like much more problematic studies. Oh yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but uh, Crash Course has a really good uh, psychology series, and the early ones talk about some of this stuff. Where you're like, yeah, you're like you're checking responses and you're checking attachment by like getting the moms to leave the room and like seeing how the kids yeah. react, and that's how they start figuring out like secure and insecure attachment. Also, Alison Bechdel in um, Fun Home talks about all of this attachment stuff too. Very good, very good graphic novel. Mm -hmm. Recommend. So a lot of our understanding of uh this comes from the yeah these animal studies uh so there's always sort of that kind of caveat when you talk about some of this stuff yeah just because it happens yeah. in voles doesn't mean it happens yeah. in the people uh this, in this case mm -hmm. it does <laughs> and even like there's there's been some studies interestingly right like some studies have shown that um children will still attach to abusive or neglectful yeah. caregivers uh, and it seems paradoxical but again it's because of that one aspect where it's necessary to their survival and they have no other options really to go to f to receive that, you know, the, those needs. Yeah. Um, and they also don't, they might not know anything else, right? Yeah. Like a six-year-old who's has an abusive parent, their abusive parent is like, they still need them for like the house and the food. And then they don't know it's not normal. Mm -hmm. uh, and then there's even been some research to show like, can you use, like can using the mother's odor help? Uh, reduce the stress response, uh, particularly in infants, um, particularly with premature infants, mm. because they have to go undergo so many medical procedures. True. But there's some concerns around, like, if you're using this to constantly soothe their stress response to these painful medical procedures, are you affecting the proper recognition of an association to their mother's scent, right? The same oh, sort of, it's the yeah, Pavlov's you're... dog, right? Yeah. <laughs> so now you're sort of, you're a lot, because we're talking about premature children, they're spending all these times in the incubators, all these medical procedures to help, you know, basically get them living on their own. And now you're associating the odor only with these sort of things. So, you know, again, it's very, very difficult to figure out like what's the right, what's the right way to conduct some of these, not even these studies, but like what is the correct way to use the knowledge that we have without, you know, creating a bunch of deleterious effects. Uh, downstream. Downstream and unintentionally was the word yes. I was looking for. Yeah. So that's a little bit about how we form these types of uh, bonds uh, with, with people. So let's go back to romantic love because it's February and that's the fun stuff to talk about. Mm -hmm. Um, we'll talk about dating in humans. Yep. Um, so, so yeah. Davis, yes. do you think that men and women can just be friends? Of course. Of course they can. Well, you are, uh, I feel there's a lot of people who have the opposite. I agree. I, I know I, I know I torpedoed <laughs> I know. We, your, uh, segment there. <laughs> that's okay. We're not going to be able to ask this question. I too. must answer honestly. <laughs> That's, that's fine. Me too. Uh, it's very fine. Cause also by that logic, like I'm a, uh, I'm a queer woman. I like men and women and whatever. So the idea of like 
men and women can't be friends because there's always going to be an attraction that's going to get in the way. I was like, do I just not get to have friends then? How does this work? Mm. It was always an, an issue that I took with that sentiment. Um, but there's a lot of people who think that. But uh, in a study that was done on undergrads, <laughs> of course, always in undergrads, uh, there were a lot of couples were started as friends first. So this one study was of 298 psych undergrads. So that's a, a decent uh, yeah, that's a decent pretty good sample. Mm -hmm. um, so of this, forty, they had like a, a list of like, check which way you think is the best way to meet a romantic partner. And it's like friends first or dating apps or blind dates or all of this stuff. And 47% of respondents said the best way to meet a potential romantic partner was through friendships that turn romantic, which is interesting. And I know a lot of people reflect that as well. They're like, I'd rather like have a friend and get to know someone first and then you can mm. like migrated into a romantic relationship because then you already have like a base of trust and understanding of this person and knowledge of them and you're not trying to figure it out all at once when often like sex and sexual attraction is mixed in because that like throws your brain off so much <laughs> compared to uh like in in terms of like building that trust like we were saying with all of your hormones and your chemicals going on um and then of the 298 responder uh psych undergrads 47% of them were in romantic relationships. It's weird because it's also 47. Mm. So I had to check these numbers a few times, but it is also 47. So 47%, almost half of them were in romantic relationships. And of this group, 70% reported that sexual attraction developed later in their knowing each other and not right when they met. Which definitely undermines the idea that like, oh, well, maybe they only got into, that maybe they only started that friendship to develop a romantic Love relationship. Love at first sight. Yeah, or like, oh, the best way to get into a relationship with someone is to become friends first. And like, it is, it's a, it's clearly a thing that happens a lot. Mm. But if you are just becoming friends with someone because you want to date them, you're not being their friend. Oh, yeah, yeah. Right? That, that, <laughs> so, yeah that's, that's a whole other um, conversation. I do wonder a little bit with stuff like this, though, like, um, when you give people a survey and you ask them a question, like, what's the best way? Like, which yeah. way would you ideally want to be get into a relationship with someone? They're going to pick, like, idealized choices. Yeah. But I don't know that that always, like, that's how things play out in real life. Well, there you know was I mean? there was a meta-analysis oh, of seven mm -hmm. studies. Um, and it had, uh, like, it asked a bunch of uh, couples and single people and stuff. Mm -hmm. um, and they, the percentage of friends first romantic couples uh, in these seven studies was between 40 and 73%. So, you know, floating around half, higher than half, mm -hmm. right? Uh, and this was higher in married couples, especially married or couples under 30 years old. Uh, and it was higher in queer or same-sex relationships. Hmm. Which, that one to me, if I had to theorize why, is probably because, like, there's smaller numbers of queer mm. people. And they tend to all know each other. Yeah, the communities or, like, are a bit more tighter-knit. Yeah, so there's a lot more of, like dating between friends and becoming mm. friends first because you're introduced to the community and all of that stuff. Um, and then uh, of these groups as well, 42% of these couples also reported like a friends with benefit situation first. Mm. So it's the friendship and the physical stuff without the commitments mm -hmm. of, a like, of the relationship as we call them. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. Some interesting studies there. Yeah. Uh, one thing that you see sometimes come up uh, when it comes to human dating, I think you've probably seen... Human dating. Human dating, <laughs> I know. Uh, <laughs> human music. Um, this is pretty catchy. Yeah. Do, do, do. <laughs> it's like three tones. Do, do. Yeah. So human dating. Um, That's a Rick and Morty reference. Yeah. We're not just being weird. 
So sometimes, uh, if you've seen, in, I feel like this happens in like, I, you've probably seen it in a Hollywood movie at some point in time. Someone has to seduce someone else, and they are given a pheromone that oh. makes the person like uncontrollably lust after them, like a love potion, but with science. <laughs> and uh, so there's some postulation that human pheromones exist. So pheromones in animals um, are well documented. Animals, insects, plants. Pheromones are really just cell signal, uh, chemical signals that are sent between different organisms. A non-sexual example is ants. Uh, I've heard that if you find an ant in your kitchen or your house or whatever, and you crush it, that crushing is going to, like, it's going to, like, release pheromones. Yeah. And that, so that the other ants can find it. And also, this one ant was, like, a scout or, like, a seeker ant. Yeah. And it leaves, like, a trail. So if you do find an ant, make sure you wipe down the whole trail that it left. Yep. Or the other ants can follow it. Absolutely. Exactly. So, exactly. So pheromones, pheromones. are not just sexual, um chemicals they're related to all these different types of signaling between animals and and ants are a great example because they have really complex pheromone signaling yeah bees have it as well um all sorts of different it's um, a bug thing it is insects in particular insects and plants in particular use a lot of these different types of pheromones to signal each other are they called pheromones in plants yep cool yeah, yeah. i'm pretty sure they're called pheromones um because like for example i'm pretty sure the you know everyone talks about the smell of uh, fresh cut grass. Yeah. It's a signal that the um, grass <laughs> that <there's been> <laughs> leaves are sending to others that they've been damaged to warn them and allow them to start undergoing certain cellular processes to protect um, their energy investment, essentially. Yeah. Uh, and those are pheromones, right? They're signals that are being sent between individuals of the same species or of other species. I'm trying to think if I've ever right. heard that in my plant science degree, but I think we all just call them chemical signals. Yeah, chemical signals, and and maybe yeah, maybe I'm misattributing pheromones, which are an animal thing, too. But I know it happens in insects, but yeah. and I'm pretty sure it happens in plants. But uh, often there's this postulation that pheromones exist in humans that you could use them to attract people. Again, you see it in all these kind of crazy yeah. Hollywood movies. You spill a vial of it, and you're like, oh no. Yeah. <laughs> now there is no, there's not really any strong scientific evidence to prove the existence of like a human, you know, attraction pheromone. Darn. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but this comes from a number of different reasons. One, pheromones in general, in all um, sort of experimental environments, are really difficult to study because they're volatile chemicals. They're aromatic, so they're these long chain uh, carbon molecules that are generally in like an animal's sweat or certain secretions and things like that. And they break down very, very quickly in uh, reaction to the environment. Like oxygen just breaks stuff down. These are long chain molecules, which means they break very easily. Uh, they're fragile and they just are very difficult to study. It's difficult to extract them. And then it's difficult to like study their specific effects. Uh, so that's one part of it is one, it would be very difficult to basically like collect a human sweat, run it through the gas chromatographer and like identify like, oh, well, this is exactly the pheromone I'm looking for. Cause it's just, there was so much characterization involved and a lot of these substances are just going to break apart before you can even study them. Interesting. The other aspect of it is, is that one, um, ethically be very difficult to study this. <laughs> like if there was, if there was a human sex pheromone, it would be very difficult to ethically study it, its effect on other humans. <laughs> but true. two, in general, human beings, like we wear a lot of scented products. Yeah. And those scented products are going to vastly outpower any sort of natural pheromones that may or may not exist. Uh, you know, there's still, there's some studies that show that like, oh, well, people will become attracted to the scent of their partner and things like that. Um, but that's probably more closely related to existing 
like love signaling like oxytocin and stuff like that and again just a recognition uh, like um what's the word i'm looking for um association there we go (laughs) just an association with that person yeah and humans like our sense of smell is the most strongly attached to our memory and our smell is very weak compared to other animals yeah Yeah. i always think of like there's always movies i don't know if it's like with animals or like if there's like talking animals and stuff and they always talk about how much the humans smell or like maybe from like fantasy worlds they'll Mm. talk about that like if you have these other types of species and then they get a human in the mix and they're like, God, you smell. And it's because the human doesn't smell natural, right? Mm. Like they have all of these extra scents on them. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, that whole thing of like, Mm -hmm. if you've ever had like a partner and they've like left a shirt at your place or something, and then you like sniff the shirt or like you sniff the pillow Mm -hmm. that they slept on and you're like, Oh, it smells like them. It's not like, it's not pheromones, you know, like it's the, it's their soap, it's their shampoo, it's their perfume, or yeah. their cologne, or their and deodorant, and their sweat. Yeah. yeah, and then your association of, this smell is this person, but it's not pheromone, it's all the uh, these other scents. Yeah, we make absolutely. We're smelly creatures, and then we put mm-hmm. a lot of other smelly stuff on us. <laughs> and the other reason, too, is that like we don't really need pheromones in the same way, because we have an entire social paradigm and a very robust social understanding, like, our like among the species that dictate these behaviors. Yeah. Right. So they, that is going to supersede some level of chemical attraction. And that's why you typically see it more in sort of the quote unquote lower order animals, things like ants, um, you know, the insects, plants, things like that, that have a little bit, you know, I don't want to say an ant's social structure is simpler because ants have an incredibly complex social structure, but it is a little bit more defined. Yeah. 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 More rigid. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay, final topic. Uh, I didn't really pull a lot of science for this. I pulled a handful <laughs> of statistics, but they were all really boring. But I, I, I felt we had to talk about it. It's Valentine's Day. People are hitting them up hard. The dating apps. The dating apps. The dating apps. The Tinders, the Bumbles, the... And the funny thing is, is like, I guess like I used the word apps because that I was sort of steering the conversation towards like those phone apps. But this is also like the whole gamut of like... Um, online dating, yeah. like OkCupid and Plenty of Fish and Farmers Only. <laughs> <laughs> Christian Mingle. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> there is a dating site for like every single cohort, like sub-cohort of human beings that you yeah. could imagine. There's a dating site for it. Every cohort and kink. 100%. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and people are using them, trying to find love, and then mm-hmm. complaining that no yeah. one wants to find love on them. There's that one, and I forget what it's called but i started seeing ads for it a couple years ago it was like the dating app designed to be deleted oh, that's hinge hinge right yeah hinge is really popular right now yeah and it's funny because i heard about it and then i heard about someone who was like oh yeah like i met my partner on hinge and they are now getting married so you yeah. know the idea of like the dating app designed to be deleted in air quotes because oh like it's not for hookups it's for serious relationships well this perfectly encapsulates one of the points i wanted to make about, oh, about dating apps actually is because like um so Tinder gets a really bad rap. I think that Tinder is sort of the early adopter of these as well. I remember I read like a Wired article about Tinder, like Ooh. before it's heyday. This is like, I was in my undergrad. So yeah. this is like eight years early ago. Early undergrad. Right? Yeah. <laughs> early undergrad. hundred percent. And I was actually like, I was like, I don't, I'm not trying to do the hipster. Like I was on it before it was cool, no. but like I was like but an early adopter cool. <laughs> of Tinder because I had read this article and I was just so curious about it. Right. I was curious. And then I had actually told a lot of my friends about it and it just sort of, it proliferated, pro- proliferated from there. So Tinder creators, you're welcome. Yeah, it was definitely me and not the Wired article that yeah. I'm sure hundreds and hundreds <laughs> of people read. You're welcome, Tinder. Sorry, everyone else. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but anyway, like, 
Um, Tinder has become quite, like much maligned because it's like, oh, it's only for hookups and people are just on there to try to get laid and blah, 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 blah. Just swipe, 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 swipe. Yeah. But what is really interesting is about apps like Tinder specifically is that they've gamified yes. the app. So like we were talking about earlier, right, with like certain video game reward systems kind of like that. Tinder is super, like, Tinder makes money. They do have like a premium. Yeah. And they push it pretty hard uh, to try to make more money. But... Tinder also sells advertising space on the application. And so Tinder is now incentivized to have people engaging with the app for as long a period of time as possible and as frequently as possible. And then they're not incentivized to get you off of the app. So obviously no one has, other than the people that work at Tinder and the coders that work there, no one has like a crystal ball into how exactly the algorithm at Tinder works. But there's been a lot of accusation that the Tinder application actually will push down matches like so if you're um if you're a frequent engager with tinder if you're constantly on the app there's some rumor that the algorithm actually puts down people like will push people that have been mad like have swiped right on you um or that you've swiped right on it'll push your profile down so that you're deeper in their stack so that people have to go through more individuals before they get to you and that you'll keep going or even that it'll spread out your matches so that you'll get you know that it'll um those hits of dopamine when you get a match will be like less frequent and so that it'll increase your engagement and keep you looking at the app and now all of these apps have will have like a swipe limit per day unless you pay for their premium right right? and even tinder has like in the option setting you can choose like this is my radius that i'm looking at right um so you can set it to be like i only want to look at people who are within this many kilometers of me because why would i look at anyone farther than that but then there's like there's a secondary setting where you have to say like only show me people in this range yeah so you it's like it's not just oh like i set my range i'm done and then you might be swiping and you're like this person is two thousand kilometers away like why is this showing up and then you have to like look through the settings again be like oh i missed the secondary thing to click to not show me this person Mm -hmm. who i obviously was not going to like was it swipe right yeah yeah i was not going to swipe right on because they're too far out of my range because Tinder's just like, haha, we'll put this person in front of you and then you won't swipe and you'll be on our app for longer. Exactly, right? And so then I I will say, like, I've tried Hinge. Oh. Uh, I will own up to it. Um, <laughs> I had actually never been on a date from someone I'd met online. I'd had Tinder. Again, I was an early adopter of Tinder. So I was on it for a really long time. <laughs> <laughs> but not, like, super actively. Like, um, and I, I, you know, it's I was like, oh, I've never been on a Tinder date. Not really because of, like, um... It's not like I've been trying to have hundreds of Tinder dates and it just never worked out. It was like, you know, maybe three or four that maybe almost made it to that stage and then didn't quite go that far. Um, But I will say that, like, in the app design of Hinge compared to something like Tinder, you really can see a different design philosophy. So, for example, right, like, with Tinder, your matches are always hidden, right? Until you uh, encounter their profile and you also swipe right on them, then you match. With Hinge, it actually pushes the people that have, like, engaged with you or mm. swiped right, so to speak, um, to into a stack. Now, if you don't pay for the premium, you know, you only get to see the person on the top of the stack and you have to kind of go through them one at a time. But again, it's incentivizing a more complete interaction with a person yeah. rather than a, like, swipe right for a dopamine hit kind of thing. And then as well, like, the way the profiles are constructed is rather than just five photos and a little blurb, it's like, 
um, you know, the classic, like, 20 questions conversation prompts. Oh, okay. Like, you know, I'll geek out about blank, and then you put a little response. And then someone, rather than, you know, just swiping right on a profile, they can choose to respond to a prompt you've made or a photo that you have, and you huh. put a caption on your photo. Even to the point where one of the features they just recently added that I saw was you can now add a voice clip. Hmm. So, like, you can kind of give someone a sense of what you sound like. Did you add one because you have such a beautiful radio voice? Oh, thank you. Uh, <laughs> I was fishing for that only slightly. Uh, I did not. I know, I, I did know. not add that. I'm not really, I'm not active on it anymore. But, like, yeah, it was a thing. Like, I, and I just, again, it was, like, really curious because, again, this is how they're advertising it. This is apt to be deleted. But you 100% can see that mm. in their design. And then interestingly, because they've sort of designed it in this way and they're really pushing this narrative of what the product is, they push their um, pre and everything about the design is meant to push the premium side of it. Mm. And they push like the premium sign up harder than like Tinder or Bumble does, mm. right? Tinder and Bumble, they're making their money because they've got millions and millions of users who are looking at the ad space they're, they're selling. Right. And, you know, you make money from the app store downloads and stuff like that versus like Hinge has sort of specifically gone against that grain. Obviously, it's going to drive their usership up, but they have to find other ways to make revenue because of it. So it's really interesting. Yeah, yeah. very much so. Yeah. Um, and of all of these dating apps and things, we always hear about like, people are on them all the time and like yeah. they're swiping all, the, all day long. And there's even seen people like make like little machines. It's basically a thing that will just like, Hit it so it like oh my it, god it swipes the for tinder, you? the Tinder walk is a, what a buddy of mine calls it oh, yeah. the Tinder walk because uh, you put your fingers on your phone and you walk your fingers crossed oh so my you're god. always swiping right so yeah. men and women's experience on dating apps as well this is a really interesting thing it's like yeah like, wildly different yeah there's almost no comparator yeah I was a uh, so I have also had Tinder a couple times through the years um, I was talking to a friend a male friend about my exam or my experience of it and he was like. Yeah, like, it's, I found them depressing, you know, like, I, like, never get a match, and then, like, you do, and then they, like, unmatch with you, or, like, I had another friend, and he was talking about it, he was like, yeah, I was talking to a person, she just stopped talking to me halfway, like, in the middle of a conversation, and I was like, what? Whereas I, like, if I, if I swipe right on a dude, it's a match, like, 95% of the time. Yeah. But then you have to, like, and, like, It's a I, different set of problems. It's a different set of problems, because then yeah. you have to go through, and you, like, sometimes they'll send you messages, sometimes they won't, but they do, and it's, like, you, like, read what they say, like you did you even read my pro like yeah. I wrote stuff did you read it and you're like, clearly you didn't read it or like one guy spelled my name wrong and I was like I don't know if you're trying to do like a nickname but this is maybe a that first was message. maybe that was a neg maybe that was some of the well I'm the glad game I, coming out I'm glad I never replied to them <laughs> I know it's and like it's not hard to get someone's name right it's yeah. like written right there it's like it's like the one thing you know yeah but it's like the yeah like the difference in like man, no one ever matches with me. So this site is like just depressing versus, oh my God, I have so many matches. How do I like actually go through and choose who to talk yeah. to? Because I'm not going to start talking to 10 people at once. I remember one year Tinder tried, to do, Tinder tried to do something similar to like the Spotify wrapped that's become really popular in recent years. I don't years. know what that is. So Spotify wrapped is... Oh, yeah, like yeah. at the end of the year. It's yeah, like, yeah. these are all the things you listen to. Yeah, exactly, okay. right? And it's like all personalized and stuff. So um, Tinder <laughs> one... Did one? Yeah, I think they only did it for two years and then they stopped. I, <laughs> like, ooh. Because, but like, so uh, I was living with a really good friend of mine at the time and she had... Um, I think we both had this kind of come out within like 48 hours of each other and hers was something like, you know, it had a few different engagement numbers, but her, she had something like over 2000 likes in wow. a calendar year. And I think I had 40. 
<laughs> and our numbers of like swipes were similar like oh, they were wow. not fully comparable i think in fact i might have had like 10 times more or something like that i don't think it was that bad but again like it was this dramatic difference <laughs> and i like i saw 40 and i had not gotten 40 matches that year but like it was just more the people that had liked your profile and it was 40 and i was like pretty i was like that's not bad yeah 40 pretty good you know, I'm, I'm, and then, then yeah. you run into your friends just like 2,000. You're just like, <laughs> wow, we are not playing the same sport. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but as we talk about this, we're saying like everyone has this experience. They don't have the, all, all mm-hmm. have this experience, do they, Davis? No, they don't. According <laughs> to some of the statistics that I did decide to pull for this. Yes. Um, I mean, you know, I, I was saying to Sarah before we started the podcast, I was talking about some of these numbers. I, I, I'm not sure about the strength of these statistics, but there were some surveys that were done uh, in the States. And it, I just pulled these numbers because it was an interesting comparison to how um, dating apps have grown in their acceptability and in just their usage in general. Yeah. So in 2013, which again would have right been at the start of a lot of the dating applications, lots of dating websites existed. Yeah. But, um, but not a lot of like young people were on dating websites and stuff. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so in 2013, it was said about 11% of Americans reported having used a dating app. And then by 2020, that number was closer to 30%. And then there was a similar uh, increase in the proportion of people who said their relationships started because of a dating app. Like in 2013, it was like sub 10%. It was like in the 6 right. or 7% range. And now, and then it was, you know, several times higher than that in 2020. I have some dubiousness towards these numbers. 30% seems really low. It seems really low to me too. But we don't know if they're talking about 30% of the entire American population, right? Like yeah. if they're not accounting for people under 18 and then even, you know, it, it would be harder to account for this and it wouldn't necessarily make sense to remove them from your uh, cohort. But like you start thinking about, well, people over 60 in you know it's less frequently on the apps yeah exactly or they're they're less likely to be engaged with that particular if you're over 60 in 2013 and you've never used a dating app you're probably pretty unlikely to ever use one right so are you is it a valuable statistic but within that then this study goes on to say that among participants between 18 and 34 years old i believe it was the number of people that reported having used a dating app in the past year was like in the 60 percent range see and that's what you expect more right yeah and again this is like a bit of a selection bias because that's the cohort that we inhabit yeah so of course we're like well everyone i know is on a dating app or has used a dating app yeah in the last year and many of the people i know formed their relationships from people they met on dating apps yeah. but again that's just very anecdotal evidence so yeah I'd be, I didn't look into this, but be curious to know how it changed in the pandemic. Like, I'm sure it's a lot higher because of the pandemic. Because you can't just like yeah. go out and meet someone. You're like, yeah. You're probably going to meet someone online. Um, but one thing I find really interesting is how the like dating apps and the way that our society looks towards relationships and sexual relationships and mm. this like sexual liberation of sorts that we're going through now mm-hmm. and how it's affected the new people. sexual revolution as it were yeah and like the view that everyone now has on sex and in particular like women right and the focus is on like women looking at sex as more of a like it's not as important as it once was or like it's a, li- a bit more free yeah right mm-hmm. not um, as stigmatized yeah and it's not as much about a connection like the casual sex in like our generation and especially the generation coming up is a huge thing and it's much less taboo this whole idea of casual sex and that's because like growing up it's everywhere it's everything like 
your uh, there's a really good documentary it starts very weird i almost turned it off but once it gets into it it gets a lot better um, <laughs> i feel like it's just a resounding like, review it's a it's a strong choice to start that i was like oh no but then yeah. once it gets into the actual documentary it's well done it's called liberated the new sexual revolution and this is about uh uh, focuses mostly on like university or college kids on spring break. Mm. So a very specific uh, time in people's lives and the way that sex is just like everywhere and and it's not connected to anything more meaningful or or like actual connection or knowing someone's name or remembering them at all. It's just this like thing to do or in particularly for men, it's a way to gain social status. And it's like, what's your number, bro? Right? Don't even get me started. I, you know, every so often I get stuck down that Instagram real trap or whatever. And every so often it's all these ones of like, what's your body? Like people interviewing each other on the street. Like, what's your body count? What could you buy with your body count? I oh hate, God. I hate the body count conversation. I I've never it. heard it called a body count. That, that's what a lot of the, the Gen Z oh. uh, call it these days, it seems. At least on the internet. And the yeah. internet is not a cross section of the entire world. <laughs> I understand that. Especially what you're seeing on like TikTok yeah. and stuff. But yeah. still, it's a good indication of like what this new generation and the way that they're viewing sex and dating apps and stuff have helped to push that message as has all of society that's showing this like over sexualization mm-hmm. of people and especially women and then uh what i'm seeing happen is there's just women taking it and owning it being like fine you're gonna sexualize me this much then i'm gonna sexualize me this much and now it's a choice and now i'm doing it and i'm in control of the narrative that i'm putting out Mm -hmm. it's still highly sexual and the message still comes out the same but like i'm thinking uh a lot of like female music artists right you see this a lot uh like especially in the female like rap and r&b world where women have been so sexualized for so long and now they're like and this has happened for a while but i'm seeing it a lot more now where they're like really taking it like you've got um like WAP was a huge song for a while and people were really mad about it but you're like they're saying all the same stuff that the men have said for so long they're just now saying it Mm -hmm. right so it's like it's not a new story it's just new people saying it or like uh I've recently gotten into the artist I don't know how to say her name Doja Cat I think pretty sure that's how it's pronounced yeah yeah and like she's got some sweet songs they have like really cool beats and they're like funky and they're awesome and then like watch the music video and and then you listen more closely to the lyrics and they are incredibly sexual but My it's name like, is Sextina Aquafina. That's a Bojack Horseman <laughs> reference for you. Yes, but exactly. It is. But it's, is that's like exactly it. sort of the, um, yeah. I mean, yeah. it's even the same thing with um the, the OnlyFans stuff yep. in the last couple of years. Um, like, that, you're going to sexualize yeah. me anyway, I might as well monetize it. Yeah, exactly. That's the idea, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and then you can see this idea as well reflected in the, the evolution of the dating show from something like The Bachelor or The Bachelorette into <laughs> oh, shows like where it's like, I'm going to find my soulmate out of this group of people. Two shows like Too Hot to Handle. Again, this is a Netflix one. I don't have any other services, so I talked about Netflix. Um, yeah, Too Hot to Handle is a is a reality dating, dating show where a bunch of really, really beautiful, scantily clad people show up to an island for a reality show. Now, they think this reality show is just like, like the old like school... Like Bachelor in Paradise. Yeah, or like the real world, like that sort of thing where uh, yeah. they just show up, they're going to be their personality yeah they're gonna be their personality and they're going to live on this island for a month with a bunch of other hot strangers and get up to sexual hijinks and all of that and then become famous yes but what happens on too hot to handle is at the end of like the first day they're told like you are not allowed to have any sexual contact with anyone else you're not allowed to have any with yourself the most you could do is like hug other people and uh 
If you decide to do anything else, there's this pot of money that you'll get at the end, and any sexual infraction, as it were, will have money taken out of that pot. So it is incentivizing people to form, or like, to give other people a chance to like get to know them a little bit instead of just jumping into bed right away. Um, to be like, instead of just having sex, maybe try forming a longer term bond. And there's obviously still very fraught because it's a dating show. Um, and yeah, people only like know each other the, for a few weeks. Don't they like make them sleep in the same beds? Like yes, they have to sleep, they have to share a bed. They have like to a share a bed. bed yeah. And like it's, it, the it's competitions are all like designed to titillate them or whatever. And, yeah. And there's gotta be a rule that like you have to be in a bathing suit for 90% of your time. Because they're oh, I'm always sure there's, I'm sure there's some production <laughs> yes. hijinks behind the scenes. So there's definitely, like, they're trying to tempt them because drama for TV. Yeah. But this idea of, like, the dating the dating show is no longer, we're bringing these people together who, like, really want to find their match to, like, we're bringing people together who specifically say they only have sex and they don't want relationships. Mm-hmm. And we're going to force them to try to have a deeper connection with someone. And one good thing that they do is they will have some workshops and stuff to help them to, like, process through why they feel this way and, like learn a bit more about themselves mm. but again it is reality tv and <laughs> and that's supplementary to the <laughs> drama that's second yeah. tier yeah. less important than crazy crap happening yeah the those sort of the workshop things don't happen until like the second half of the season it's all drama <laughs> off the front oh my god i, I <laughs> yeah if you if you ever needed to torture me <laughs> you could stanley kubrick like Clockwork Orange strapped me to a chair and showed me like The Bachelor and Two Ought to Handle and Bachelor in Paradise on repeat. And I would I would crack crack faster than a hard boiled egg. Like now you know. Oh my god, I cannot like I get it. It's it's just it's all good. It's all fun, right? Like it's all you know, I'm not gonna deride anyone for like liking the bachelor. And I totally get as well because like bachelor viewing parties have become a big thing again, right? Mm. It's just like, yeah, there's a there's a social aspect. Like it's fun to watch a show socially and be able to like dish about it and stuff like that. But Oh my god, some of these shows that, oh man. (laughs) But it's interesting to see how even these shows have developed in response to our society and our society's relationship with sex and attachment and love and And all of that. Yep, absolutely. Uh A lot of people are starting to question the paradigm of monogamy for the first time. Right, It's not really something that was ever talked about before and it was really heavily stigmatized in the past. Something that attitudes have changed on uh, a little bit more in recent years. And I think something that we'll continue to see the conversation around evolve. Hopefully. There are people who use the terms incorrectly, and then oh, that gives people uh, yeah. a bad rap. It's a whole, but... <laughs> yeah, that's a whole thing, right? And again, it goes back to, like, it was stigmatized, and then it's sort of less stigmatized, but then people use it as an excuse to do shitty behavior, and yeah. blah, 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 blah. And cults. Yeah. So, anyway, that's all a topic for another day. Maybe another, a different podcast. Maybe we'll put it in, we're going to do one no, on cults non, at some point. A non-science-themed podcast. <laughs> but, yeah, so I think that takes us mostly through everything we wanted to talk about today. It does. Um, I I think we got a little bit more like wax poetic about like our beliefs on like love and romance, romantic relationships. But I think we covered a good gambit, a gamut of things that are like, this is what drives those impulses in human beings. Yeah. I think if you like jumped through the show, you'd be like, here's an opinion. And then like, oh, they're talking about the brain. And then like, here's an opinion. And then like, oh, mother child attachment. And then. (laughs) Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I don't really have anything else that I feel the need to add. Um, Um, Instead of just showing your love to each other on Valentine's Day, like, show your love to each other all the time. You know, tell your friends you love them. If you are in a romantic relationship, buy them flowers just because you thought about them, not because the day told you that you have to, because, like, that doesn't really mean anything. Mm -hmm. Uh, But, like, if you're just like, oh, it's a Monday and I'm on my way home from work, I'm going to get them flowers because I want them to feel special and flowers are beautiful. Like, 
just show each other that you love each other all the time and give your friends hugs if they want them yeah. and uh, don't be afraid to form deeper attachments but know that you don't need to be in a romantic relationship to find purpose and meaning in this life. Great. Excellent. <laughs> Fantastic. What a, what a point to end off on. Uh, so, yeah, I don't know what we're going to talk about next. Uh, we hinted a little bit about maybe doing alcohol for St. Patrick's Day, but that's mm -hmm. probably a bit about a month in the future before we'll do that. So we're thinking we'll do something in the between time. The interim. <laughs> in between time. <laughs> I didn't want to say interim because I use it a lot. Uh, but word. And then I got stuck with a word word soup instead. Um, so we were thinking we, you know, we did get the request for the Manhattan Project. Mm -hmm. um, that'd be a bit more history oriented, but it would be probably pretty interesting to talk about some of the physics that underlie it in a little bit more detail. Mm -hmm. um, we talk about the psychology that went into yeah. it and everything. Yeah. We've got a few... Other like topics from the back burner that we could yeah. potentially pull up. So we'll maybe take a look at something. Uh, hasn't been a lot of like crazy science news lately, so yep. nothing really in that realm to talk about. But we'll figure out what we're gonna do next. And, and if, uh, if you yeah. have a specific request, especially yes, if it's topical, yes, yes, please yes. send it over to us, and we will uh, take a look at it right away. And speaking of which, there is now an entirely new method to communicate Ooh. with us. Ooh. That's right. I achieved one of my. New Year's resolutions, and there is now an Instagram account for temporary experts. So Yay. it is temporary experts. Ooh, uh, multiple can, experts. Multiple experts, because I could, I, I had Enough an unlimited characters. number of characters. <laughs> uh, so you can find us on on Instagram. Uh, we're just kind of getting it up and running now, but uh, I mean, it exists. It's just like we're gonna start posting a bit more frequently, and we'll obviously post about the show when it comes out. But uh, that that is that's a great uh, platform that you can use to communicate with us yes, if you so desire. And please follow us on Instagram and yeah, uh, that would be great. engage with our posts so we can sure. hack that algorithm. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Obviously we still have the Twitter. Uh, that's at temporary expert. It's just one expert. Yep. Uh, you can also reach us out to us there. And uh, I'll if, still post all the stuff on my uh, third sock from the sun Instagram. So yeah. you can find it there. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, if you feel so inclined, you know, maybe uh, give us a rating on whatever platform you're using to watch or watch listen to your watch uh, with your ears watch with your ears uh and uh you know maybe leave a review just helps us reach more people and keep growing the show uh but i think that's all from us here today so for all of us here at temporary experts she's sarah bannister and he's davis leong and we have been your temporary, temporary experts. experts thanks for listening <laughs> I'm just a little bit of a